Hey church, this is Pastor Jeff. Um, you know, from time to time as we were preaching through books, some of these books get kind of long and um, we have to skip passages of scripture. And some of the some of the passages are good ones. It's, um, there's no nothing against that passage, of course. The reason that we skip it, it's just that we have limited amounts of time. And so, um, so some things get, get cut out. And one of the one of the passages that we had to skip recently um, was Deuteronomy 15. Uh, it was a piece that um, I I found really fascinating. Um, it's this this picture that we're you'll hear about here in just a second um, of the the divine hope for Israel, uh, but that also contains what I think was one of the most misunderstood verses in the Old Testament. So I'm really grateful to have um, a medium here to be able to communicate with you and hopefully hopefully just offer some reflections. I know that for me, um, it's been a pretty helpful way to, to think about our politics and our economics, just the way that we live um, and have to sort of live here on um, just the way that we that we live in our world. So in, in particular here, I'm thinking about Deuteronomy 15 verses 1 to 11. Uh, it breaks down basically into two portions. Um, the first is verses 1 to 6. And um, in those verses, God really lays out this vision of debt relationships in Israel that is is deeply challenging for us today. So it reads like this. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Essentially, the Lord says that debt should not determine the futures and long-term relationships of the people of Israel. You know, in our system, debt is kind of the basic foundation of our economy. Our entire system is based around good and bad mortgages. It's student loans and credit scores and car loans and business loans. It's yields and and on and on. And that's to say nothing of the national debt or, or national deficit. So, I mean, I'm not pretending even here to, you know, understand the financial crisis of 2008 um, or finances more generally, but I know that it was based on bad lending practices by banks who gave money to a whole lot of people who had no real hope of paying it back. You know, we, they, built this system on bad debt, and that debt one day came crashing down, and it took a whole lot of people's livelihoods with it when it did. Now, had we been a nation that was somehow following the law of God, that would have been impossible. In fact, our, our current system would be impossible as well. You wouldn't be able to get a 30-year mortgage in a real Judeo-Christian system because every debt would be automatically forgiven every seven years. Every debt. Every piece of property would have returned to the original owner. I mean, can you imagine that? If you read further on in the chapter, you'll find that this is true of slaves as well. No one in Israel was to be kept for more than six years because no one's debt, however large, meant that their life could be kept from them and their family for that long. Now the caveat in verse 3, 
um, is that property which had been lent to a foreigner, of course, could be kept after those seven years, but not your brother. Every Israelite was to be treated with this deep amount of respect. And before we kind of look at that and we judge them for their insular attitude, you know, they, they're willing to do it to a foreigner but not to themselves, uh, I think maybe we ought to check ourselves at our society where family members sue the pants off of each other, husbands and wives regularly destroy each other financially in divorces. You know, we use money and inheritances and debt as ways of attacking people. And in our culture, whole neighborhoods and the, the people groups who inhabit them are refused the kind of grace that God is commanding here. Now, I happen to believe that when you read the intention of the law and the proclamation of the prophets is that God always intended this freedom from debt to extend to all people everywhere, but that it was to begin with his people Israel as this sort of example. And so then reread um, here this kind of key line in verse 4. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now remember that Deuteronomy envisions this world where Israel is obedient to the Lord and where her land extends across most of what we know as the Middle East today. Right? It sees Israelites living faithfully and extending themselves for each other. In, in, in that reality, there are no poor. This is by comparison to the nations around them, but absolute poverty in God's land, in Israel, amongst God's people, has been eradicated. Now, this was completely unimaginable in the ancient world, right? In the great empires of Babylon or Egypt or other places, all of their progress, everything that they did and built, it assumed this huge amount of slave labor. I mean, the pyramids of Egypt, the, the, the great hanging gardens that we hear about of, of Babylon, do you think those were built by people who were willing and willing workers that were paid a fair wage? No, these, these were put together by slaves who broke their backs, who, who broke, whose knees, whose, I mean, whose bodies fell apart building this, many of whom died in the process. But then here in this amazing vision of Deuteronomy is a world where everyone has enough. And don't hear me advocating any one political system, because I'm not. But, but I am saying that any political system that does not see the eradication of absolute poverty in a way that also encourages virtue, right? Courage, righteousness, temperance, wisdom. Any system that doesn't try to stamp out poverty while encouraging virtue has not lived up to the name Christian. And this is where Christians get the idea that everyone should be able to find work that will pay them enough to live on so they don't have to sin. Right? You can't pay someone pennies and then condemn them for stealing bread. But at the same time, we need to build a society that does not rely on dehumanizing work. I, the image that always comes to my mind is in the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. His dad is a toothpaste cap screwer on her at the toothpaste factory. Just this meaningless kind of monotonous work. But many others do work that's soul-crushing in a different way. 
they're the ones giving out loans in the early 2000s. They know people are not going to be able to pay back. They know repossession is going to happen. They know lives are going to be destroyed. But their job depends on them taking advantage of people. And so they do it because they're trying to feed their families. Now, our system should not do this to people. No system should do this to people, and yet it does. It does this to millions of people across our country. And so let me be clear here. Our, our system is probably, as far as I know, the best possible option right now. I don't know that I would want to move to any other country for financial reasons. And yet even our system, which we might call the best, is broken. So how should the person who wants to be holy live? After we feel kind of thoroughly condemned in verses 1 to 6, we're led to something, I don't know, maybe a little bit more helpful in 7 to 11. It says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, Well, the seventh year, the year of release, is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in your land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Now we are clearly to live generously. And friends, I am so condemned by these verses. I fall so far short of this standard. I, I so often want to give what I believe someone deserves or what, or I prioritize my own financial goals over the goals of God for the one in need. I know of a pastoral staff from a very old Nazarene church. And the Nazarene church is not that old by church standards, but by our standards, this one congregation has been around a long time. Um, and as they were figuring out pastoral salaries in these times of great need, they'd sit around and ask the question, what can you live on? They, they wouldn't ask the question, how are we going to pay for my 3% raise this year, right? But rather, it was a question of need and of meeting need. Not meeting the expectations and standards of the world's practices, but who has the most kids? Who is it? You know, I mean, we're going to ask questions about what people actually need. And then as the church, we're going to come try to meet those needs. But we're not simply trying to meet somebody else's expectations, meet somebody else's priorities. And it's really similar in this second section. God explicitly commands Israel not to have the thought during this seven-year cycle of debt release that they would withhold lending to someone because it was the sixth year, for example. And then, you know, they're only going to have one year to pay back uh, that debt and not, not six or seven. They wouldn't have time to recoup their investment. So God explicitly forbids the Israelites from acting in this way. Instead, their hand was always to be open to a fellow Israelite in need. They were to give to a poor sister or brother everything that they might need and more without begrudging them anything. Hmm. Uh, it's clear to me that this needs practical boundaries. But I want to communicate, and I don't want to pull back from the core truth that's present here in this text. 
which is that your wealth is not yours. Your property is not yours. It, it belongs to God and to God's people. And so don't think that the New Testament gets you out of it, right? Matthew 5.42 says to, quote, just one place, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse from the one who would borrow from you. And we might say, okay, fine, that's basically what Deuteronomy says. But Jesus then pushes it even further, saying that we ought to give to a Roman soldier an enemy who demands something of us. We ought to give him at least twice of what he asks for us. Maybe you've heard people quote the line. In fact, it's the line that Jesus quotes here from Deuteronomy 15, 11. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. And we often use this as a way of telling ourselves that it's okay not to give to the poor because they will always be here with us. But Jesus says this in Mark 14, right? Directly after the woman that we believe to be Mary Magdalene comes to him and anoints his feet with this alabaster flask of ointment that from of pure nard. She in that moment, prophetically pours out what would have been worth tens of thousands of dollars onto the unwashed feet of Jesus only days before his crucifixion. And the disciples, when they, when they see that, when they smell that, as they are in that room, they respond the way that many of us do when we look up at cathedral windows worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then we see right underneath them those who are forced to sleep outside. We see pain and tragedy juxtaposed with beauty, and we ask, you know, can this really be just? Is this the righteousness that God calls for? And of course it's not. God does not desire that anyone would suffer. And I promise you that God cares about the poor more than you and I do. But investment in the glory of God is never opposed to the good of the poor. Rather, we ought to invest money in beautiful churches and beautiful places which by their very beauty improve the lives of all who would allow that beauty to penetrate their hearts, whether rich or poor. But even more than that, I think that Jesus is hinting at the kind of generosity that this prophetic saintly woman poured out on his feet that day. When he quotes from Deuteronomy 15, he's raising up the entire understanding of freeing one another from debt, of generosity, and of sort of covenantal love that's present among the people of God. Among the judgmental disciples and the self-righteous Pharisees who hosted him at that dinner, Jesus points out that this woman has fulfilled the vision of the Torah to receive the poor one with honor, to meet their need with generosity and even reckless generosity. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. This woman in Bethany, she fulfills all righteousness with Jesus, who is about to be the poorest among them. In some ways, he always was the poorest among them because he left the riches of his Father in heaven to be made human in the womb of Mary. He took on human flesh, he emptied himself of all that heavenly glory, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This woman is the only one who sees him for what he is, the poorest among them. 
and she responds with the open heart and open hand that the law has required. She is the only one who grasps and lives the law, and in so doing, she becomes a shining example of the gospel. You know, as far as we know, Israel never lived this portion of the law. We have no evidence that they did. But Jesus himself is the one who came to set the captive free. He is the one who comes to redeem us out of all our debt, out of all our sin debt, out of all even our physical debt. I want to know, how will you follow Jesus in this calling today? What debt are you able to free someone else from? Can you forgive a grudge that you've long held against your brother or sister? Can you release someone from a physical debt? Can you pour out unnecessary and remarkable generosity into someone's life today? We may not live in a state. We may not live in a nation. We may not live in this sort of kingdom utopia that Deuteronomy looks at um, and causes Israel to hope for. But we do live here in the church among the people who God has established through his son, Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that we would all be reaching toward the type of relationships with one another that not only build up that care and that mercy, but establish us, establish us in Jesus himself. When we do those things, we are not just being nice people. We are participating in the very life and the very economy of God. I want to encourage you to find a way to carry this out today, this week. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace to you. We'll see you on Sunday.